Welcome to the SciFox Podcast. I have uh, Colin Budrys here with me, as well as Ibrahim Aljohani. Uh, so we'll be interviewing Ibrahim. He's um, was the second engineer at the company and is a highly talented scientist from MIT. Uh, and you'll hear a lot more about him shortly. Ibrahim, how are you doing? Thank you for sitting down with us today. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here. So let's just start, you know, from the beginning, because some of the people who are going to be listening to this will have, you know, just be meeting you or have never met you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Like, where are you from? Where did you study? I'm originally from Saudi Arabia, which is a country between the Arabian Gulf and the Red Sea, right between Iran and Egypt. It's a very deserty climate, but for the first 12 years of my life, I was living abroad due to my dad's job. Um, so you were, where were you living? So nine months after I was born, we went to the UK, so London, like in the suburbs of London for five years, and that's where I went to preschool. Briefly after that, South Africa for three years, did first year, first grade there until third grade. What's the longest you've lived in one place? I kind of missed out on a lot of fun things. I'm the youngest, so my family lived in South Korea for seven years. So do you, you, how many siblings do you have? Four. Because you have four siblings, you missed the seven years in Korea. Big age gap, yeah. Okay, interesting. And at 12, you returned to Saudi Arabia? Yeah. Okay. And what was your... Very weird, honestly. What was your family (laughs) doing abroad? Like, why were you traveling so much? Well, my dad works at, like, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So he was working at, like, different embassies over the world, like the Saudi embassy in the UK, South Africa, Vietnam, South Korea, Switzerland, a little bit in the U.S. also. Is it a lot of, like, does he discuss oil with people? Is that a big part of the job? I literally have no idea what he does. Okay. I'm, <laughs> I mean, also, my dad is like just a very stoic personality. Like, he doesn't talk much at all. We just infer things. Okay, interesting. Um, all right, so you get back to Saudi Arabia at the age of 12 or so. And so you're going to go to high school in Saudi Arabia, basically. A little bit. Like middle school up to high school. And that was strange, you said. Yeah, it was weird, honestly. Because I was going from like a a non-segregated school Mm -hmm. in the Southern Hemisphere. Okay, switch from South Africa to Saudi is weird in different levels because you get like three months of summer and then another three months of summer. So you end end up missing a whole year of school. So Um, is, but... Yeah, I was also homeschooled. Like during those times, I used to like... Like, have two curriculums, the the regular curriculum and then the one that was sent to us by the Saudi embassy. And, yeah, so so moving to the Middle East, which I've also done once for a while, it feels a little bit like it felt to me a a little bit like uh, I lived in Israel for two years, like living on the moon in a way, because it's, like, very dry and Amazon doesn't deliver there. You know, it's always – you can only fly out. Like, you can't really drive anywhere from Israel. I don't know if it's the same with Saudi, but like you can't really like, there are not that many places to go outside of like the couple of place, the couple of cities. And then you fly to like the other, essentially the other planet, which is America or, or Europe or Asia. I don't know if that's like your experience with Saudi also. Like most settings in Saudi are indoors. They're like very controlled temperature, very controlled humidity. We don't like, there's not a lot of outdoor things to do. Like, I mean, it's oh, I see. You're now. not actually spending time in the desert. No. 
But isn't that kind of similar to living on the moon? And like I mean, the, that has the some... five minutes that you're waiting outside of school is the worst five minutes in your life anyway. So why do you want to be? <laughs> so it's like, you mean just, just because it's hot? Yeah. It's like, I mean, it's still fine. Like your kids, you're doing like crazy shit, but like remembering back on it, like how would we even? Do... What are you referring to specifically? Just... Like after school playing soccer, like bare feet and like 55 Celsius weather it's like right. your heels are melting but you're still somehow playing soccer okay interesting <laughs> okay but th- that has some moon qualities to it right like a lot of things are indoors i've never it's been to like, the moon it's but... it's like uh you know inhospitable and so on all right so you go you go to school in saudi arabia and how does that like probably not what percentage of people going to school in saudi arabia go to mit basically is it extraordinary to go to MIT from from Saudi or is it like kind of common at least in like the upper classes to go to you know some of the one of the top schools in America like how common is that was it considered like a luxury or like was it considered like a cool thing to do to get into MIT until recently like was that like let's say 10 or 20 years ago would people even aspire to that or would Um, they aspire like for example to do do business or something else I can't speak to high schoolers right now but when I was growing up I'm pretty sure nobody knew what MIT was oh really so it wasn't like it wasn't a big deal it was in America my mom said you shouldn't go to like an institute because it's like a diploma it's not a real university (laughs) so that that was and my That's brother awesome. had to convince my mom that it was okay to go to MIT. Really? Yeah. Uh, and, and people. How did you? Don't... Know? I mean, how did you know? Just because you had lived abroad and okay, the I don't know if it was a fever dream or not, but I feel like I knew that I wanted to go to MIT like when I was six years old in South Africa. Really? But I, I don't know if that's true. Or not. It's probably. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I was interested in like I was such a curious kid. I was, like, for example homeschool like homeschool you can go at your own pace so like you would pick up the things that are interesting to you like science uh, math these kind of books but like that you can just flip and go on your own pace you don't have to be contained do you ever read encyclopedias oh wikipedia was like yeah okay you read a lot of wikipedia Uh, yeah it was like a rabbit rabbit hole interesting okay and so somehow in the internet world you found out about good universities and decided you wanted to go to MIT years later. What did you do? Like, what did you actually have to do to make this happen? Mm. Was it just a well, natural outcome well, from it like, it wasn't like studying that. a lot or did you actually it, have it, to put a lot of like directed effort? In? It happened yeah. by chance. It wasn't like planning through throughout my life that I wanted to go to like, hmm. I need to go to MIT, but it, it happened by chance. And then kind of when it happened, it's like, Oh yeah, I actually wanted to come here at some point. It was like, kind of like that. But it was mostly just going with the flow, going with the things that you're interested in. And if you're actually, if you're really authentic and you're interested in things that you're saying that you're interested in, and MIT is a good fit, then I think there's a very, very high chance to get there. I don't see any blockage. It's what like was you're your, your own roadblock. Do you remember? Do you remember for for those listening that are like you know studying in high school in Saudi Arabia now? What uh, do you remember what your college essay was about? Yeah, I have a couple. Because MIT's essays were like short answer essays. They were like 200 words and okay. like multiple prompts. So one that got featured in the MIT newspaper was the physics Olympiad that went bad. So I had like, it was at Singapore. It was an experimental section of the International Physics Olympiad in 2014. 20, no, it wasn't international. It was the Asian Physics Olympiad. Where there was an experimental section that you were testing with different like 
liquids like cornstarch, things like that, and you were measuring the indices, like the optical indices of, of the different uh, materials, and then it accidentally, like it was very, very humid and hot, like you can't imagine. There's no air conditioning in Singapore. But there was a spill that happened. I also have like a, eczema, so I had an allergic reaction to the, to the liquid. And I was like, I kept scratching and scratching and scratching for like 15 or 20 minutes until I started to bleed. And then I couldn't stop. I was also stressed, right, induced, but I took a banana, broke it apart, and used that as a moisturizer, and then kept kept going with the the test. Okay, interesting. <laughs> so that that made it into the MIT newspaper that essay. Yeah, that was like your hardship. It was, it was that short... was your that was your hardship essay. Yeah. Or was... did you have a did you have another <laughs> like, one that was a hardship? It was like, essay, tell or... us about a problem that you. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> okay. I know that answer to that one. There's a question on the uh, Y Combinator application that's like a. What is one thing you hacked into? Have you ever hacked into anything? Like, have you ever hacked any system or like, uh, yeah, something for your benefits? You hack into anything ever? I shouldn't say. I don't know if MIT. <laughs> I don't know if MIT asks this, uh, asks a question like this. But basically, the reason they ask this question is to to see whether you're like willing to think out of the box to solve your problems. Yeah. Because that's often, you know, that's like very correlated to to start to being good at starting startups or uh, finishing them, I guess. But yeah, anyway, it's, there, people have interesting answers to these questions. I actually don't remember what we answered when we applied, but it's like a funny question. People sometimes have very good answers. Like I wrote a script that emailed every single person in this list and then it would automatically like route them to each other and like, you know, just crazy. People have very interesting answers to this, especially developers that can like build well, syst- like crazy systems. I can tell you like a story that happened last week. Okay. All right. <laughs> I was very interested in the real estate market in Saudi Arabia. I was like wondering where all of the data is, what the recent trends. But the data is like in, like locked in an API, like in a very strict government website. And I was like, I'm, I'm pretty sure I can read that. <laughs> like, so I went in and scrapped all the data, and now I have it in an Excel sheet. <laughs> Okay, that's interesting. But yeah, I should I shouldn't be advertising that you can do that. I mean, there's probably like, a, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's probably a real estate developer. If who you don't would buy see that. me on Monday, there's probably a real estate developer who would buy that from you. That's interesting. Um, I mean, the data is there, but like, yeah, it's it's not being used. It's it's annoying. But all right, okay. What originally like sparked your interest in science? So you must have there must have been something. Maybe you can remember it. That was your first like good experience that caused you to come back for more. That's a difficult question. What first? I don't. I don't remember. But like one time, I think when I was. Are you, t- are you asking specifically at MIT or no? no just how in your entire life. In... When in your life the first thing where you really had like a positive experience that sparked your interest in science? Often people can think back to one or two things that happened, yeah. which kind of showed them, oh, this is actually really exciting, and I want more of it. Kind of got them onto the treadmill of trying to have more, more sure of these experiences. I'm pretty sure it's more gradual for a lot of people. But I guess I keep going back to the time that I was in South Africa because that was like a very memorable time in my life. And I, I love South Africa. I want to go there again. Hmm. It's an amazing place. But we were just moving in. The, the entire home was empty, but my sister was there working on a – 7,500 piece puzzle and she was like it was just empty it was just the puzzle so we were like working on it together and then and then the, and the last piece she gave it to me and said put it I was like that felt really really nice and I still remember it 
<laughs> you still remember completing the completing puzzle. Completing the puzzle. And, okay. and I've been interested in puzzle like since then, maybe more, but I don't Interesting. know. Interesting. What what age was that? I don't remember. Oh, like very young, I guess, because putting his, the last piece into a puzzle wouldn't be like that. It exciting. was such a cute puzzle. It was like, a, it was like, <laughs> okay. it was like a, a store of like a, I don't know two older people that are in an antique store that would do really different, interesting things, like that sort of thing that a six-year-old would remember I very see. well. Yeah, yeah, I've heard a lot of mixed opinions <laughs> of puzzles in the past, but this, you know, it's a redeeming story for puzzles. Tell um, me more. I mean, you know. You could argue that puzzles are a big waste of time. Like the people tell me that I don't understand. Do why. you still do puzzles to this day? Okay, so, well, uh, there's something beautiful about doing the things that you used, used to enjoy while being like a child. Yeah. yeah. Like when when That's I was true. a sophomore year in, like in between go, between going from sophomore year to junior year, I was really really depressed. Like I didn't feel any. There's any point in doing anything. Uh, okay. It was okay. just like grinding and grinding and grinding but the the weird thing is that i didn't know i was depressed is this that, a typical like trough like trough of sorrow for mit students like undergrads do they usually start having know. a rough time People, halfway through i don't think that that's there's a stereotype there but when i was at mit in the like materials building there are all these signs that say like 70 percent of graduate students are depressed and i'm like looking at the sign like uh, <laughs> am i supposed to the reasons feel are, something uh, yeah, like, am I supposed to feel something, or? <laughs> anyway. But, okay, so so you were you went back to doing puzzles during this period. Yeah, I just finished one puzzle, and that made me, like... But, anyway, I, don't, I, don't, I wasn't That's depressed because I was at MIT. I was just depressed. I see. Yeah. Okay, so what drew you to physics and electrical engineering, and what kind of research did you end up doing while you were at MIT? Yeah, so uh, that was a great question. I don't know what you were talking about. So yeah, physics and electrogenic, that's a weird combo, but it's only a weird combo because MIT doesn't have an optics program or optics engineering. So you had to take classes a little bit in both. And most of the interesting stuff were happening at grad classes in the electrical engineering department for optics. Like MIT didn't do much applied physics. They didn't have an applied physics program. It was like mostly theoretical because apparently what, I, what the dean told me is that like that's because every other program is an applied physics program. <laughs> what do you hmm. want to do? Yeah, so, so it was electrical engineering for MIT, but for other universities, it would, probably would have been applied physics. But anyway, the way that I got into it, high school used to do like a lot of competition, science competition. It was very fun. I met great people throughout those three, four years. Your favorite uh, physicist. Who's your favorite physicist? I think Feynman. Feynman. Yeah. Okay. Is it? Do you it's feel the like way he explains stuff. the books? Yeah. They got you with the but books. Let me finish the story. Okay, so, okay. so I, I just got in. I, it's just a short answer. Like, but I only got into specifically into optics because I was apparently good at understanding it. Like, and I was told that maybe I should consider it as a career. I was like, hey, yeah, that's sure. That sounds great. <laughs> I'll just do that. Nobody has ever told me that. So, it felt, huh. it felt validating. So, I was, was it like sure. a professor or somebody else? It was else? a professor. Yeah. Okay. It was. Uh, from this professor from Estonia. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I always say this theory to silicon photonics people. It's never really gotten like an amazing reception, but it seems that the people who work with like classical systems or like some mostly classical systems mm -hmm. are a little bit happier than the people who work with quantum systems because the classical systems make sense. Like it's a warm and fuzzy feeling. You know, the models make sense. Everything is like 
you don't have to accept any strange axioms, basically. Yeah. Uh, so there's I mean, a lot you of... You have to be crazy to believe in quantum mechanics. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of... Exactly. There's a lot of, like, satisfaction in the thing, you know, doing kind of, like, something relatively deterministic or understandable, even if it's very complicated, like thermodynamics. There's a lot yeah. of satisfaction in, like, understanding it at a mechanistic level. Yeah. But also um, mathematicians are crazy, so we're already used to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah people who like quantum physics tend to be more mathematical, I mm-hmm. guess. But, um, okay, and what kind of research did you end up doing? Um, so you stayed through your master's, right, at MIT? Yeah, still, I, I started doing experimental work uh, or lab work in junior year. It was the start of, like, it was a combination of, like, electrical engineering or, I don't know, also, I just remembered, I did an internship in optics in, in, in Kaus University in high school. That also had a big effect, but I just completely forgot about it. But anyway, but it, it was still between high school and university, so it happened after yeah. the, 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 all the science competitions and stuff like that. But anyway, um, in my research in undergrad, I did work on silicon photonics, so right, mostly sensors, like silicon uh, is this amazing platform for electronics, so the more optics you can put on the same chip, like because data centers, fiber optics, all run in optics. So the the more cohesive the relationship between electronics and optics, the like the better and faster the systems are. So I was working on optical sensors, like like free space optical sensors hmm. on platform. On what what does that mean, a free space optical sensor? Free space is platform. everything, like everything that's not, like in a fiber optic line and in the data center. I understand, but what is a free space sensor on a chip? What, is it a grading coupler that emits light into ah, something? Or it's, what? A, it's a photonic crystal. Okay. A photonic crystal is uh, a metastructure, so it's like just a repeated pattern that somehow guides light very, very well, mm-hmm. and you can make resonators out of it. So even though silicon is a very poor absorber of light because of an indirect band gap. Emitter? Or absorber, it's the same thing. Okay, yeah. I guess so. It's just the reverse time, so the name's reverse. Like it's it's the same. Is that true in practice? Like it's yeah. a, it's a bad laser. It's it, a bad laser, but it's a pretty. Doesn't it absorb light? I mean, it's black. It absorbs light pretty. Mm. Or is it? Is, what are you talking? about? So it's a bad laser. Electrical abs- like absorption with the means of elect like like generating electricity is different from absorbing and becoming like hot, and like because those are called phonons, not photons. Okay, fair enough. Uh, so you're talking and, about... And the problem with silicon is that it absorbs and generates phonons because the indirect band Because gap. of the indirect band gap. Exactly. Okay, so you're saying it's a bad absorber. It's a bad absorber and emitter, so it has very weak... And also, like, especially in the infrared, it's, it's a good... Because, like, the energy level between the two points is, like, beyond a certain point, it doesn't absorb very well for short wavelengths, so, like, infrared, things like that, where most of the telecommunication band is, so there's very big motivation to use silicon for, like... Mm-hmm. telecommunication systems and the idea there was that you can just amplify the light instead of like having the light go past one time you would make a resonator a way to trap light like between two quote unquote mirrors such that if it doesn't get absorbed the first time it just that gets more chances to be absorbed but there's like a lot of caveats with that and this is to make a basically like a detector so it's, a deta- you're exactly. measuring... it's, it's literally a light detector. It's like okay. what, like a, a like any type of like so car you, sensor or something. So like maybe that. just let's just car use... sensor is a good example because that was the motivation for our project, like lidar. If you've heard like I see. radar, but for light. So okay, so yeah, I've definitely heard a lot about <laughs> lidar over the last 
few years. So, okay, wait. So let's just drill down to the bottom. So you are trying to make a better silicon detector. And normally it's it's germanium. The detector is normally germanium. Exactly, right? but that's not very friendly to a lot of electronic-based foundries. Right. So they growing, want to keep using. It's, it's difficult to grow germanium. Silicon doesn't it's also absorb. More expensive. Zil, silicon doesn't absorb in the infrared where you want it to absorb. Exactly. There are lots of silicon detectors in the visible, but you want infrared because of telecom. Exactly. Okay, I see. And it's um, also better. Like infrared light travels better because there's fog. You can still see through it. Right. It's. I see. Yeah, For LiDAR use cases, it makes sense. Exactly. Too. So you were adding light out of plane into your sensor? Exactly. I see. So it was a, it was a photonic crystal for out-of-plane light. Exactly. And you were – okay. Now I, I think I get yep. the picture. How did it go? It was great. Actually, a weird part – like I was working on two projects. That was like the first one. The second one was like more biology-related stuff. Like for example, you can easily imagine how like – an energy harvester that would you would implant in the under the skin that would use infrared to operate. So a sensor of that type would be beneficial in that case too. And there's a lot of like op- interest in optogenetics with planting chips in brains that activate like certain neural pathways. Yep. So if you have a chip that can absorb and, and harvest light, you can do that non-invasively. You so can you just can shine a laser through the skin or whatever into, ex- into exactly. The and instead of like like there's these weird hookups for optogenetics where Half of the skull is just cracked open, and then there's like a lot of cables coming out. So there's okay. a lot of <laughs> a lot of interest in making that non-invasive, implantable. I would say. Did you have any luck increasing the absorption? The absorption was pretty low. I mean, you have to have to keep in mind that I was like an undergrad doing like a lot of other stuff. But but there was a patent that came out of it. There's uh, some research papers, but. Um, what was it's hard, the figure it's hard of merit? To like, what was the figure of merit? And what do you mean? Like, was it was, it, was absorption the figure of merit, or is it like absorption over area, or what's the responsivity? So <clears throat> it was like how much current is generated for the certain amount of light. Okay, and that that's the figure of merit. Yeah. So what? And also efficiency of how how well does it power something else? There's the power efficiency. And what was it? You know, without your device, and what was it with your device? Well, there's nothing that you can benchmark that to because it doesn't exist. Like, all the other types are... Well, you can benchmark it to germanium, let's say. Like, how is it compared to germanium? There's a theoretical limit. Like, I don't I don't remember on the top of my head, but there's, like, a mm-hmm. limit to how much you can absorb from... Like, it's kind of like an inherent material thing. Okay. Um, it does, but it managed to improve it by 25x. 25-fold. So 25-folds. Okay. That was the improvement from really low to 25 times very low. <laughs> right, right. Okay. But it was still it was still a big achievement. That was it was good. How were these chips fabricated? In a silicon foundry. Okay. So were you doing that at Nano at MIT Nano, or were you sending it out? We were sending. We were taking uh-huh. it out. Okay, interesting. Okay, and then you went on to fabricate, I think, diamond transistors. Yes, that was my masters. Work. Yeah, that was my work in masters. What it is was... a diamond transistor? So diamond is a super attractive material because it has such a high resistance to everything basically it's very hard it's very thermal resistant it can withstand high amounts of current theoretically but there's not a lot of electrons available for movement or conductance it's just the surface right exactly so carbons don't like being replaced with something else you can't dope diamond that's the big problem Hmm. if you want to generate carriers typically in silicon you dope it with something else phosphate or boron one electron 
more or one electron less. That's how you get it charge inherently but diamond that you can do that you can replace a carbon it's really hard so but on the surface there's like a lot of these dangling bonds on diamond surface that you can pacify with like hydrogen and then you would get a conducting surface so it's a 2d transistor maybe we should back up for the biologists listening here what is a transistor like how does a transistor Ah, work just just working principle it's a switch it's a light switch it's very valuable so what do you mean by that like how does a light switch work like what is what do you mean by that? Like, how does a, let's start with like, what is the block diagram of a light bulb or sorry, a light switch? It's like a three terminal device with two ends being having like a certain amount of like potential difference between them, electrical potential difference, such that if they were to be connected, you would have current flowing. So the idea is that when the switch is on, you would have no resistance at all. But when the switch is off, you would have high amounts of resistance. And that's like just the basic building block of modern day computing. So, so in, a, in a light works. switch, there's a physical piece of metal that gets disconnected between the two, vo- the voltage and the drain, like the ground and the voltage. Exactly. And that's why the electricity can't flow. But in a transistor, something else. And the transistor, it's exactly the same. But it's the footprint is that it's very, very small. Because how does you it, need how does it happen in a transistor? So that you typically have like a dielectric, so something that's not conducting on top of a non-doped silicon. So it's a neutral silicon. And then above this dielectric, non-conducting material, you put a metal plate. And if you apply a high enough voltage to that metal plate, you would instantaneously or instantaneously dope the diamond such that it would make a channel at the surface. That So it's a 3D structure in most cases. So... You were working on diamond transistors in your master's. What was the hardest part of that? Like, what was the challenge of the project? Getting that surface to be conductive enough was a big challenge. Yeah, it was, um, it was ephemeral, the conductance. That was uh, keeping it. And was it literally like a surface chemistry issue? Like it was getting contaminated? It or? Yeah, it was a lot. So one, as soon as you pacify the surface, the surface becomes very prone to, like, it's a charged surface, right? So it will it will attract a lot of, stuff in the atmosphere so it had to be vacuum sealed nitrogen packed things like that and any error in that would like it was a challenge also growing that like okay we weren't growing diamond but part of the process was growing a very thin layer of diamond so Um, you were growing diamond in like pcvd or in some process like that pcvd yeah okay um so you had to grow how thick was your layer of diamond it was like a few nanometers and do you grow it on silicon or do you grow it on something else on diamond. You were so, diamond on diamond? Yeah, yeah, we buy diamond. Diamond wafers, you mean, right? No, no, it was it was just small, tiny chips of diamond. Oh, okay, it was yeah. like a diamond millimeter by millimeter or centimeter exactly. by centimeter chip. Exactly, okay. and you would uh, design a 2D layout on top of the, the diamond to make a certain amount of like electrical functions, like a resistor, like a transistor. Well, why like do you that. need to grow diamond on it? It's just the part, it's, it's kind of like a diamond, because the diamond you buy could have like graphene pockets on it, things like that, that are not pure. So you need to first put it into condition where diamond would grow, because that would clear off all the graphene. Okay, interesting. So you're kind of refinishing the surface. Exactly. Okay. But yeah, there's, there's a lot of complicated stuff, like surface stuff that goes into it, like roughness and things like that. So you had like transient periods where it would work and then it would get contaminated from the atmosphere exactly. or whatever. And, and then do you know what happened? 
Do you want to know the end of the story? COVID happened. Oh, and I took it. So it became a very theoretical approach. We were working on theoretical models, simulation to understand this. And that was actually a, like, it's like a very good thing that came out of it because we realized that there was a lot of experiments leading experiments in the literature. There weren't a lot of people that trying to understand fundamentally how this works, like 2D conducting surfaces. So it became a very useful tool and which became the core of my thesis to graduate from my master's. So basically you built a model for the conductance of the exactly. 2D surface. Okay, yeah. interesting. Using a quantum current simulator, yeah, which is still a new thing. Like people didn't use that in the field. Like the, the I feel like the field of power transistors is a very, very experimental field, so it added like a lot of value. Hmm. That's cool. Did you publish your software? Technically published because it's in my thesis. I see. But yeah. it's not on GitHub or anything. It's not in GitHub, no. Did you put it on GitHub? <laughs> All right. Now we've arrived at, like, finally we made it to the question about Cyfox. All right. How did you – let's have Colin ask this question. Okay, Ibrahim. Tell us the story of how you end up at Cyfox. You obviously graduated from MIT with your master's. How do you find yourself up I-95 in Burlington, Mass. at Cyfox? Yeah, so the the last year of university, I was thinking whether to do a PhD or not. I did an internship between uh, undergrad and master's in, at Apple. But yeah, it was, it was kind of a time where I was thinking about like switching to industry and like, giving a shot at least, like a serious shot. So, And that's also where I met you, Mike. You were taking a class with me in the nanotechnology process, I think, or something like that. But, yeah, it was like yeah. the, the the graduate training course for MIT Nano to use basically to to like start using the tools at MIT Nano. What was like beyond? It was actually that was an amazing course. It's very hands on, very love. I think just the was, guy teaching it is just loves I know. fab. So it's like beautiful to watch somebody who loves something teach it. Yeah, like uh, it's, it's Jorg uh, Schloven, I think, was yeah. the professor. Who's the MIT? He's the MIT Nano director. Yeah, 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 he's like the director of the yeah. Fab. He's teaching the, you know, teaching like the class about the Fab. You know, it's like a perfect. He uh, loves building <laughs> Fabs. Yeah, yeah, he's he really, he's really into that. like how they're setting up the machines and like what kind of yeah. heavy floor had to be put in for the microscope to like not vibrate too much when the train passes a mile away yeah. and like, you know, the whole, I was going to TA that class, but COVID oh, really? happened again. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's fine. But, but yeah, he, he's an amazing personality. And, uh, and he also graduated from the same group that I did from masters, but it also like, I think that friendship like that we had, like we were on like a, in the same group project, we were working on like solar cells kind of thing. Sort of thing yeah, we like ma- we fabricated a solar yeah. cell together and did a we presented it or something yeah. like that. We put together some presentation yeah. together like a slide deck. I think that yeah. was the interaction. And there was I, a third person. Yes, there was uh, a rapper on that team. Yeah, yeah, the rapper. <laughs> I mean, I yeah. So it's funny. My my main memory was that on one of my wafers that I was fabricating for microfluidics, mm-hmm. I wanted to put a picture of my wife, and uh, I couldn't convert the. JPEG to a GDS file fast enough to like submit it in time. 
and you happened – I think you just were accidentally there or something like in the computer room I was using, and you very quickly like ran some kind of code or I gave it to you and you somehow converted it to a JDS file. So that was like a – you know, that was like I remembered you by this thing. It's like this is the guy who, like, <laughs> this is the guy who delivers the. I mean, this is pretty. Sci-fi's didn't exist at the time. This like this was a. Uh, Hope your wife like 2019. It. Yeah, yeah, that's still hanging on my wall. You know, it's like a PDMS. Very. It, I also put the yeah. So Jane is in in that wafer, and then there's another empty space on it that has a Van Gogh, like the Starry Night. I don't know if you remember converting that one, but those were like two two photos I gave you. Yeah. Okay. So, so we met in the in the fab graduate training, and then, so I I then left MIT, started Cyfox. You were doing a very cool startup, on like something related to silicon photonics. Yeah, I was doing. That's how you kept in touch. That's true. Yeah. So I was doing MIT yeah. and the optical computing project, and kept in touch about that. And then, Diedrich and I started Cyfox. Then a while later, I don't know if you remember this, but we ran into each other just like at a cafe or something. This was a few, I want to say like. Not Kalataco. Six, yeah, yeah, okay. So you do remember this. At like six months into yeah. the startup or something, yeah. Idrick and I were at Nakotako. You were there, uh, and I introduced and I you had guys. Just rec- yeah, yeah. recently graduated. I remember that. Yeah. Oh, okay, so this was just like a serendipitous thing that yeah. you also were looking for something. Anyway, so, okay, so, so Ibrahim meets Idrick at Nakotako. Sometime later, maybe three months or something, or like several months later, we start looking for more people. So we get funding and start looking for more people. And, and uh, that's how I think you joined the company right after Surat, right? So you, you were maybe the second full-time employee. Is that true? Or maybe between Surat, Armando, and Tara joined. By the time, by the time you showed up. I used to come informally. Yeah, yeah. When you were okay, when you started informally, who was, was there? There was only two, like the two of you, and then Sarat. Okay, yeah. So over the okay, so over the summer when you started, it was actually it's. I have really like very little memory of 2020 because we weren't sleeping, especially over the summer when we did YC. So it's all like you know, I'm, it's it's like archaeological dig. Okay, so what actually drew you to the company? Like, why did you decide to work at SciFox versus? You know, many other places you probably could have gotten a job. I mean, Apple, for example, would have definitely taken you right, like after the internship. So, what drew you to the company, especially at the time when it was very small? I think the big part of it was to be able to do science in a multidisciplinary way. So, the only what only be satisfied by that is is, is like a startup level hardware company. What drew me to SciFox specifically, I think the fact that you guys were familiar. Uh, I knew you from beforehand. That helped a lot. I knew the lab that Dietrich was working at. I knew a lot of his research, his past experiences, just through being in the same floor as him in RLE and MIT. Yeah, so, so this is actually interesting because I, I kind of joined the photonic space late in my career. So I did, I, like four or five years ago. So... Is it so if you're if you're studying photonics in your undergrad and your masters, is it common to run into Diedrich's papers? Like because he he has all these early silicon photonics papers that seem to get a lot of citations, but is it like something are some of them like these papers that you run into during your like photonics work, early like training or anything like that? I'm pretty sure I, I have, but I just don't remember it. But I I mostly knew him from the fact that he was there oh, literally the from building. his time at MIT. Yeah. Okay, I yeah. see, I see. 
He was like he was in the same floor. So. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I think Diedrich was making like an erbium doped laser on a chip at MIT, and then the lidar, of course. But I guess you were working on LIDAR. Okay, I'm beginning to start to piece together that you did some LIDAR research at the time that Diedrich was doing LIDAR research at MIT. I never actually, knew, like, pieced these two things together, although I think I knew I knew the components. Okay, interesting. But you guys had never met. Nope. You were just in, like, the same milieu. First time meeting was interview. Interesting, okay. And that's also when I, yeah, I grew to like Sapphox more through, like, the interest in silicon photonics, the photonics uh, expertise, the the mission also the fact that it has like a big impact i'm very interested in like health also biggest like this reminds me like biggest thing that happened to you at sci-fox i feel like is that you became incredibly interested in your health relative to the beginning no yes like you became much more serious about your fitness possibly through constantly having to think about biomarkers and and <laughs> biology instead of like crystal yeah, I mean, crystal lattices and and so on. Yeah, I mean, when when you're measuring this often, it kind of affects you. <laughs> but yeah, I would I would say it was a big impact, but also like I've always were interested and like wanted to have an action towards it. And I always do, but it was like through bursts of short time because I knew that I'm like studying and I had to focus on like studying and like research and all of that. But when you're working, you have a little bit more time to think about what you want to do and like what kind of routine. Because I, I've kept hearing these stories of people who start working in their 20s and then they blink of an eye, they're like 30 or something like that. So whatever routine that I start off working, I want to keep. I want to keep a good routine. If you're going to recommend a health regimen for a out-of-shape scientist from Saudi Arabia, what would it be? Two-day fast. Two-day fast. Two-day average fast. Like, try, like, see where you fit on that. Like, do one or three. How often? Every week. Two day, one to three-day fasts every week. Yes. And what about? Light exercise, like like walking. Never stop moving. What about the... Um, but also, like it's the intractable really fe- for people like in Saudi. Really, That's such a loaded question. Uh, what about, like, the really <laughs> feminine workout classes that Jane got you into? Like, the glutamus class that we did? With, like, all the really buff women. Those, those are great. I did it yesterday. It was awesome. I mean, what better motivator than being in, like, a room with, like, middle-aged women and doing workouts. That are all in better shape than you. That are all in better shape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, like, you're, like, the, the young guy that can do the exercise. What better motivator? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have to agree. That was a very motivating class. Okay, so your your suggestion is try to work out. Or move around a lot and two day fasts, average two day yeah. fast every week. Natural, also natural types of movement. Like I don't like going to the gym, for example, for weight exercises or technique exercises. Like I would rather go swimming, boxing, rock climbing, hiking, mm-hmm. all of those over because first of all, it's just more fun, and then then like just lifting a weight <laughs> on repeat. We get to experience other things, but also I feel like it's more what the muscles were made of is to work together, not like, like the for example, I feel like boxing is peak, peak sport because you're using the muscles the way they were intended to. So, okay, what do you think like would be the ideal sensor product that you would yourself use? So you've tried the continuous glucose monitor. You're testing out this quantify service that we're working on. What's your like ideal world sensor? Like if you could 
just list like what's your wish list for a sensor that you would purchase. So you're you have a wearable device. You've tried the continuous glucose monitor from Abbott. Uh, you've using the Quantify service that we're developing with at-home blood tests. What's like the ideal sensor that you would be excited to use, like biosensor that would be, you would be excited like to use? Like for biomarkers or like yeah, just type? for just for biohacking. Like how would it work? Like would you wear a wearable all the time? For example, like a CGM, but that measures more things. Yeah, I mean, I don't, li- I don't mind the the ones that don't have batteries, like the CGMs that mm-hmm. would connect for two weeks and then check on it on your phone. Uh, when I when I had it, I I used to check a lot and then try it. Like it it would it would make me more like conscious. The of CGM what I was effective. The CGM was wildly effective, and the fact that it wasn't charged like a wearable would need to be charged. I'm really bad with like planning those, so mm. I, I liked passive wearables i also wore like aspire which i don't know if you know this but there's like a sensor that you would plug in at the back of your belt which i tested in like 2015 that's very early for where for these types of sensors but it would track sleep heart rate and things like that but it would be like a passive thing that you would wear for for a long time and then you can also charge it. I guess that ended up not catching on. It got really stinky really fast. Okay, so it was like... (laughs) It it, it was made to look sleek, not very functional, no. I see. It didn't catch up at all. So I've heard you emphasize living in South Africa and being homeschooled. Looking back, do you see those as instrumental to kind of your character arc so far? And then looking forward, do you plan on living abroad with your your family and do you plan on homeschooling your children? So being in like very different situations, I would say that was very valuable to get to experience different things because the worst thing that you you can do to a child is like have him be bored and not do anything. Right. So just whatever satiates curiosity, honestly, I don't know. I feel like that, that's what I would want. I want my children to be very, very curious homeschooling has its advantage but then again like a big part of intelligence is like how you present yourself interacting with other people things like that and you don't get a lot of that when you're homeschooled but there are like certain techniques you can do to like make it more communal um but yeah i think i think just keeping it flexible and trying to provide the best environment I'm not thinking of having children anytime soon. So. <laughs> Do you think that if you don't have children until your 30s, you might run into the problem that, like, you know, you don't I have... keep thinking about it. Is it the age gap between your children? Just you just the, get disconnected? Just the everything. I think about that The fact so that much. you have much more energy now than you will yeah. in your 30s to it's deal like with It's like you're growing up with your kids. You're, like, become, like, you become friends. It's, like, such a valuable I mean, thing. I was I was into criminology, <laughs> solving uh, cases. But then I I went abroad in Ireland and then took a class in criminology and noticed how boring it is. <laughs> Just like paperwork and like, like I don't know. It it wasn't as exciting you, as I thought it was. You almost became like a detective or a, a that's that's very interesting. <laughs> that's that's you know, very home noir was like my favorite genre. I was like yeah. That's very I don't funny. know if you know Detective Conan. Also, that was my. That's a. Big I mean, no, <laughs> that's but that's 
that's like something um yeah criminology is not very marketed in in like school it's like something that you'd get into as a homeschooled kid because it's not marketed yeah. as a career i'm really glad i took much. that <laughs> i took that course and realized <laughs> that it was um yeah that that's a good are question. you into the sherlock holmes audiobooks Oh, yeah. Do you ever listen to oh, yeah, the, the, the audio? The real thing. Well, the real thing I've read, but have you ever read the audiobooks or listened to? They're in a British accent, so it's very interesting. It adds like a different dimension to it because it's read by somebody with a British accent. Should try the. I'm just saying, you know. <laughs> I mean, audio. Here's my thing with audiobooks and podcasts. Okay. Okay. Is that they? You have to. You're. You're required to go at the pace, at the at the thing, instead of like skimming ahead when when it's easy for you when you understand what's going on in exactly in the setting and then and then slowing down and repeating because as like a non-native speaker like there's very different levels of like uh, yeah i guess that's true if your english isn't completely 100 percent audiobooks don't yeah. really work that and well. also i'm easily distracted so Maybe. and unless i'm holding a book and i have nothing close next to me I wouldn't be able to concentrate. Oh, I'm like very, I'm like, I was like, oh, a butterfly. I'm like, walk away. <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, shit, I was supposed to be listening to this. <laughs> That's interesting. Okay. But so then commuting helps. Now, might... I'm, now I'm very into audiobooks. Ah, because you drive. You I have choice. to do this. And yeah, I, yeah, yeah. For the life of me, I could not. <laughs> yeah, you got to try it. You have to try yeah. the Conan Doyle audiobooks in, in, yeah, in like the I'll, British I'll English. It's very high quality. Right now I'm reading a book that you recommended. Which the, one? The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. Oh, okay, nice. So, uh, it's a really, really good book. It's a political intrigue about like a colon, like a colony in the moon, on the moon, trying to. It's it's a really, really good book. What book would you recommend that somebody read, listening to this? What's what's your like book recommendation of choice? Like your go-to. Uh, I hate this question. Go-to or favorite textbook. I hate this question. The Feynman lectures. Okay. Like the way that Feynman explains things. You mean oh, the oh, Feynman oh. physics lectures, the one or the lectures that are the ones that have math or no math? Well, it's it's a lot of text and very minimal math. It was just like the writings of his actual lectures that he okay, would give. Okay. Yep. And they are amazing. And also his semi-autobiographical book, Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman. Yeah, yeah. That's a really really nice book also if you want something that's not like super heavy on physics. Yeah, that's a good one. I I often share. I have like a folder of Feynman audiobooks that I'll just like send people links to that folder. You did not send me that link. But yeah, I, I mean, well, you don't need it. Like it's like for non. You don't know that. I don't. I, I mean, I I've never know. met anybody I, I uh, who didn't know already know, that. like any physicists who didn't already know. But, but it could be. But it's like, actually, Osra originally got me into the Feynman books. So he got me into them, you know, a decade ago or whatever. Okay, but all right, so Feynman, that's one suggestion. What about a suggestion if somebody's read Feynman? What's your, like, other textbook or fictional book suggestion? I really like Murakami. He is... This is The, the Remains of the Day, or... Uh, no, guy? Norwegian Wood. Yeah, and, I don't know like, that one. Kafka on the Shore, Wind Up Bird Chronicles. He basically invented magical realism, which is, like, blurring the line between, like, just okay. real life situations and then like magical situations and like it's really really beautiful and it has it's one of the it makes you appreciate the mundane much more and it's very poetic i love it what came before what came before the big bang hmm i would say the big bang in reverse <laughs> so the same thing that happened after like the a big collapsing bang. yeah 
Okay, okay. I mean, wouldn't that make sense from a physics standpoint? It was like... Yeah, you could imagine things yeah. collapsing into a if, point. If time started at that point, I mean, time was going negative from the point before that. Yeah, that's, that's how I'm thinking about it. Alright, okay, that's the podcast.